There's no question that climate change is real in the Oregon wine industry. I mean, I can look at my lab notes and see it measured over the last 20 years. Yeah. So um, I have the good fortune to be working with grapes grown at a pretty high elevation, pretty much the top of the south end of the Dundee Hills at about 800 feet. It's probably four to six degrees cooler up there than it is down by the highway, down by Highway 99, the valley bottom. Um, and it's gotten a lot warmer where we are. And I'm at, at the time when I first started, that was considered pretty marginal to be farming at Pinot Noir at that elevation. Was, uh, people thought, oh boy, it's going to be rough up there. Again. Right. right. And I'm very happy to be up there now. The Portland 50 podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. Our guest this week is Dave Pedersen, general manager and winemaker at Domaine de Broy a Pinot Noir-focused vineyard and winery in the Dundee Hills that's now part of the Francis Ford Coppola family of wines. Dave has an interesting background. We'll talk about that. And it's not one that would necessarily lead you to wine, but in his case, it did. In this episode, we talk about that background, uh, the Oregon wine scene, both the past and present, and how the resources of the family Coppola set up Oregon wine for a great future. Great conversation with uh, Dave Get a little sidetracked when he talks about something that I'm passionate about, but uh, hopefully an enjoyable half hour for you here on the Portland 50. My conversation with Dave Pedersen. Yeah, why don't you go ahead and say your name? Dave Pedersen. Dave Pedersen. All right, perfect. Um, that takes me back to my old uh, news talk radio days when I would interview people and I would get the names and it was basically so I could gauge the audio level, mm -hmm. but also make sure that I'm not mispronouncing people's names. Yeah, right. um, a, day, a name like Dave Pedersen, though, you have people slip and say Patterson. All the time. All I have time. people correct me on my own name, actually. It's like, hey, it's yeah, Patterson. They're I like, you oh, mean you mean Patterson. Like, no, no, it's it's Patterson. <laughs> well, speaking of names, let's actually start with name because I was going to, like, I, I speak French. Uh-huh. And so I'm like, I want to say it a certain way, but then when you pronounce the name of the winery for me, I was completely wrong. Yeah. Um, it's Domaine de Broy? Broy is, is, is probably the best way to go for an American. Like, yeah. I think it would be Broy if you're really trying sure. to be French about it. Yeah. Um, but we actually have a French winemaker in, at uh, Francis Coppola Winery in Geyserville, and he says even in France there's confusion about how to pronounce the name of the family. Sure. So that it's, you hear it sometimes Broly or Broy or uh, Brolier or so. Anyhow, we're going with Broy. It's not unlike the Cooch and Gleason not debate here That's in Portland. Exactly. Because my understanding on the Gleason thing is that the family that's actually related to the gentleman who gave us the Gleason Street Act, they actually pronounce it Gleason. Gleason. I've heard that too, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, <laughs> Domaine de Broy. De Broy, yes. What part of France, what region of France is, is that, does that family come from? Uh, they're a big family and um, they have uh, properties all over. Like, it's a noble family. Okay. Like an ancient French family. They've got a shield and a crest and the whole bit. Okay. So, it's a really well-known family and um, who've done all kinds of interesting things. In sure. Fact, there's a Maison de Broy website where you can read all about the family and there are all these interesting characters. Um, but Louis de Broy, for whom the, the Francis um, Coppola named the winery, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more, uh, was a scientist. He was a physicist yeah. and in the 20s. He was a contemporary of Einstein and and uh, super brilliant guy uh, and in, engaged in a really exciting time in physics when Einstein was doing his thing. But um, Louis de Broglie is particularly interested in, in particle and wave mechanics, again, similar to stuff Einstein was doing. Right. Louis uh, was applying those ideas to matter as opposed to light. 
uh, and came up with some uh, really interesting proposals that have turned out to be really timely because they're really relevant now to quantum mechanics. So how particles and matter behave. And he actually got a Nobel Prize in 1929 for um, work that stemmed from his original ideas. So uh, super interesting guy, yeah. Um, uh, you know, from this French noble family in between the two world wars, um, working in Paris. Uh, he's actually a radio operator in the French army in, in World War One. Okay. Um, so uh, interesting family, interesting guy. Yeah, and, and and as you point out, we'll we'll talk about kind of where the the recognition of that came to when the Coppola family, um, yeah, decided to name the the winery Domaine de. I'm going to screw this up. Just De, go with Broy. De Broy. <laughs> there we go. Um, but what's equally as interesting to me, Dave, is your background. Because as I read your bio, um, it doesn't look like a, a becoming a winemaker and a general manor, manager of a winery seemed like that was in the cards. Because you went to Vassar yep. um, to study geology and archaeology. Yep. Then you came here to <laughs> Portland, PSU, and, yep. and got a master's in cartography. Yeah. And then wine. Yeah. Walk us down this lane. Yeah. This is, I mean, life is full. I think you ask anybody with an interesting job, which you have, um, a lot of times, many of us don't set out that way. But I mean, this seems like, our, how did you end up where you ended up? Yeah, purely purely by accident. Um, so uh, my wife's family used to be in the wine business. So yeah. when my wife and I, before we were married, were dating um, back in the 90s, the late 90s, her family owned uh, a winery called Panther Creek. Um, a pretty well-known Oregon brand. It was Ken Wright's uh, winery um, before he started Ken Wright Cellars. And I purely, you know, her family has an interesting story too. They they moved out here from Des Moines, Iowa, and they were kind of looking for a semi-retirement business. And they just happened to get into the wine business at a time. Um, that was in the early 90s. That was actually in 1994 at a time when like Oregon wine was kind of new and exciting and, and, and pretty accessible uh, from a business perspective, and so they they kind of took this flyer on moving out to Portland and 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 getting into the wine business. I started helping out at that winery uh, part time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some skills that were relevant. I knew how to drive a forklift because I had worked in a carpet warehouse when I was. You have to have a license <laughs> for that, I think. <laughs> not really. <Or> be certified. <laughs> I'm I am now certified. Okay, all at right. The time. <laughs> at the time, no, not really. I learned to drive a forklift when I worked in a carpet warehouse one summer when I was in college. And uh, there is some skill to that. Yeah, there oh, truly is. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm tell- I, people ask me all the time, like, how do I get in the wine business? I'm like, the first thing I tell them, learn to drive a forklift. Okay, like, number one. All right. Like, I don't care what you know about wine. I, mean, I want to know what, you, what machinery you can operate. For, for starters, it's, it's <laughs> exactly. forklift. So I helped out in the winery a lot. Um, and uh, over time, started doing it more and more. I started taking time off during harvest in the fall to like help out um, with the sort of wine processing time of year. And I really enjoyed that. I really loved the the process side of winemaking. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a couple of years, I started doing that full time. And so her family sold that business in 2005. And I stayed on with the new ownership as an assistant winemaker and running and helping them get a, uh, a tasting room and direct to consumer program going. And that led me to uh, the vineyard known as Vista Hills. Vista Hills was providing uh, fruit to Panther Creek uh, to make wine in those days. And Vista Hills was getting into the wine, having a tasting room and a wine club and a wine label. And so I jumped over to help them get that whole program going. And so I was there for 11 years and that's when Coppola entered the picture and they bought Vista Hills uh, just about a year ago. And here we are. So, yeah, yeah, no plan to be in the wine business. Um, Just kind of worked out that way. Do you find that that, um, 
that your background, though, as looking at geology and, and archaeology, does that help in any way in terms of your approach to winemaking? It does. Uh, it definitely does. It helps on the vineyard side of things, for sure. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's definitely a landscape, geography, soil kind of component to it. Um, I get to make my I still make my own vineyard maps. So, right. you know, okay. <laughs> I get to do that. Nice. Um, so, yes, it's kind of relevant, I would say. Yeah. Not, not, uh, not uh, um, directly so much, but it, it definitely comes up. Like, I talk all the time about the Missoula flood story. And sure. it has a big impact on the area where we grow grapes. And, and so it definitely comes up. And you and I should have a conversation because I am so fascinated by the Missoula. Oh, it's flood. great. It's a great yeah, story. Be, be, that, that is the direct result of what we have here in the Willamette Absolutely. Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all the all that uh, good earth from Canada, really, oh, and so Montana. I have a great graphic that I use when I do a little presentation with this of some woolly mammoths like floating in the flood water down yeah. the Columbia River Gorge. <laughs> now, th- this is completely off subject, but I'm going to ask it because it's popped into my head. Uh-huh. Th- that flood is is part of the reason why we have the gorge the way it is today. It's, yeah, completely, it's just big big masses of water yeah. coming down at once That's and just carving absolutely. that thing out. That's how you slice a canyon through a mountain range. Right. Yeah, it's 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 not like an overtime thing. It's a pretty quick thing. Yep. Yeah, that's okay. We've we've now ventured into the area that, that we do a whole uh, show on this. Yeah, we we could very easily. So, um, did so bef- before you met your wife and your wife's vi- uh, winery that was I guess it was a vineyard, there the family vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, d- were you into wine? Uh, no, not really. Okay. I mean, honestly, uh, I should correct myself. I did take all like a wine appreciation class in college, which was very memorable. Okay, Advisor. sure. <laughs> you get credit for that? I did actually. Yeah, nice. we got, we got. Uh, it was it was not a full credit. Um, and uh, and I remember like the main thing I got out of that class, uh, I recall, was um, we drank a lot of wine, but also um, like I was like, wow, there's a lot to this wine thing. Like you could really spend a lot of time learning about all this stuff. Yeah. Do you, um, so, uh, you know, you said 2003 is kind of when you got started getting yeah. your hands, the, the forklift thing happened. Uh, I think my very first harvest was 2000. Okay. So, yeah, so you did 20 the, years this year. You actually. did the Vendage. Do you call it the Vendage? I don't. Okay. In France and in, in Switzerland, I've participated in the October Vendage where you go out and you're, you're picking grapes oh, that's for, a good word. for two like or three that. days. Yeah, the Vendage. Uh-huh. And that's backbreaking work to get in there with the little clippers. Oh, yeah. And I don't do that. Yeah. I'm just in the way of the vineyard. Okay. Like, yeah. I, I walk around the vineyard. I take some samples. I look at but things. Did you ever do that initially? Um, no. No. Okay. I've never. The vineyard work is, is, I mean, we do a token amount of vineyard work sure. for educational purposes. We yeah. do a little bit of pruning, a little bit of thinning, and some stuff like that just to kind of learn what's going on out there. But yeah. no, the, 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 the folks who work in the vineyard are stone cold pros. I yeah. mean, they, really move fast and know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's why I was never asked back. Right. (laughs) Right. Get that redheaded guy out of there. Um, So you've seen probably a transition because my my recollection of Oregon wine doesn't go back that far, but there seems to be kind of an increase in interest um, over the the past maybe 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was the Oregon wine scene like when you, you know, when you first got involved. Yeah, it's changed a lot in 20 years. Um, the, the Oregon wine scene, how best to describe it, was dominated by small producers, family-owned businesses. Um, uh, the biggest, uh, I mean, a big Oregon producer. I mean, well, well, let me give you some some context. Even now, Oregon, the wine industry is tiny, right? right. By like numerical measurement um, compared to the rest of the wine world. So our biggest winery in Oregon is something like a maybe getting up on a half a million cases. Mm-hmm. Um 
California has wineries that are 20, 50, 100 million cases. I mean, it's just like we're so small by comparison. But back then, it was even more so. Like the biggest producers in the state were probably producing 20, 30, 40,000 cases of wine. Those are the, the big the big dogs. Right. So uh, the landscape was definitely um, was small, tend to be family-run wineries. Um, the uh, wine quality was definitely more inconsistent, more over the place, all over the place. Oregon has always sort of lived and died by the weather in terms of wine quality, although that's changing. Uh, But it was really the case, I think, in the 90s and in early 2000s. Like, you'd have a great vintage and you'd have a vintage that wasn't as great. And that had to do with um, the weather. It had to do with our knowledge in the vineyard. It had to do with our knowledge in the winery. Um, So it was different. The whole whole, um, climate was more sort of amateurish, honestly. Sure. Um, but even so, producing great wines. And so that was kind of the world my, my parents-in-law were operating in. Um, and it was exciting. It was like a pioneering time in wine. Like the, the competition was lower when you went to New York to sell your Oregon wine. Like mm-hmm. people were excited. They were yeah. like, oh, Oregon Pinot Noir, I've heard of that. Like it's great. Now you go to New York and there's, you know, 50 Oregon labels that you're competing with. And so it's, it's really changed a lot. Uh, this takes me into the kind of the science question. We started out talking about science Mm -hmm. you as a winemaker Mm -hmm. as you talk about the the different harvests that you have those there's a direct correlation between the the harvest in terms of grapes how hot it was how wet it was and then the the type of product that you get as as the end result yes what do you do as a winemaker to try is there are there things you can do to try to give a consistent product or is it does it come down to you know, 2017 is mm-hmm. going to be, taste better. It's, it's going to be sweeter. Is there anything you can do to to control any of that? Yeah, absolutely, there is. And so, and there's there's sort of a, a scientific dimension to that, and there's also like a philosophical dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I came up from a, a, a tradition of winemaking that was pretty au naturel. It was pretty much like we take what nature's given us, we make it into wine, and that's what you get. Right. That's and that's pretty. That's the sort of old school Oregon winemaking mentality is like it's driven by the vineyard. It's driven by that, the year, the weather. Yeah. And you as a winemaker, your job is just sort of deliver the baby at that point. You know, sure. Don't, don't drop it. Um, there's more to it than that. So as the industry has grown up in Oregon and um, we've gotten better at the science side and the winemaking tricks, there is there is stuff you can do. Um, you can, you can, and it starts now. I mean, it starts out in the vineyard. Like right now we're reacting to the weather by adjusting crop levels. We're adjusting the canopy coverage. We're trying to sort of tune the vigor of the vines through managing the ground cover, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on precipitation. So there's, there, there are a lot you can do that starts now. Come time to harvest, we can make decisions about timing, um, to pick early, to pick late. The climate has changed a lot. I mean, everywhere, but here in a, in such a way that, some, we have more flexibility to make decisions than we used to, I feel like. Like, it used to be in Oregon when I was first starting 20 years ago that, like, you know, you, you hung the fruit as long as possible. You try to hope that the rains, you, help, you hoped that the rain would hold off sure. to October or yeah. even November, and you were trying desperately to get ripe in September, October, and you picked as late as possible. And so in a great year, the rain would hold off, and you'd get some sun late into the season, and you'd, you'd, you'd get ripe. So nowadays, we tend to get pretty ripe by you know, the end of August, September, I mean, early October at the latest, which is kind of the track we're on this year. So we now have more flexibility, I think, than we used to. Um, it used to be like we just had to take all the sunshine we could get and hang regardless. So now we have we have more options. Once you get the fruit in the winery, you know, I, I still don't really do much adjusting. I, I really don't. Like I still operate in, the, in a pretty natural uh, style of winemaking, but you can modify acidity. You can modify sugar levels. Um, there are some, some minor things you can do to address 
sort of ripeness issues. But, you know, consistency, too, is um, that's a stylistic choice. Like some wineries and some winemakers are really interested in producing a product that's the same every year. I kind of came from a uh, idea of I want the wine to be different every year. I mm-hmm. want it to, you know, I want it to taste like that year. I want it to taste like that vintage. So consistency, I, I want the wine to be consistently good, right. but I don't want it to be the same, you know? I mean, that, that's part of the joy of Pinot Noir is that it just doesn't want to be the same. Like, yeah. It wants to be a different thing every time. Where did the decision to uh, focus on, on, on a Pinot style wine as opposed to... A different variety that comes from from the from the region from the geography okay. like oregon it turns out um northern Willamette valley it turns out to be such an excellent place to grow pinot noir because of the temperate climate because of the late uh season great weather we tend to have mm-hmm. you know, beautiful september october weather uh, there are very many places in the world that pinot noir does as well like pinot noir can grow pretty much anywhere but in a hot climate pinot noir tends to produce just boring kind of sweet wine sure and in a cool climate you you get a moldy acidic kind of wine so that sweet spot is hard to find there are really only four places in the world maybe five that pinot noir really seems to perform at this level so mm-hmm. if and, and pinot noir is like one of the highest dollar wine crops you can grow so if you can grow it pinot noir makes sense so it's really um oregon has really kind of nailed it in terms of being a, a really premium spot to do pinot noir and that uh, kind of uh, strikes me as, as probably why, as the, the family Coppola came in and mm-hmm. purchased the winery, uh, kind of this focus on that higher-end Pinot Noir Absolutely. Um, compared to what they had been doing down in California. Yeah. So they predominantly do Cab and Bordeaux varietals. Um, in California, they do do Pinot Noir, quite mm-hmm. a lot of Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay and some Burgundy stuff. But um, yeah, they're they're smart. They see what's going on. Um, they know that some, re- and they definitely wanted to get into some really premium wine. Uh, and, uh, you know, an Oregon label that was really high end wine, and so um, they really looked hard at a at a finding some vineyard land in a in a really um, established and sort of proven area, which is the Dundee Hills. Um, so yeah, absolutely. That's why they're here, is they see the possibility to make really high end, top end wine. And and to do something, and I don't know how much different this is, but to actually give a very specific name to to the the winery, the domain. De, I'm going to screw it up. Again. Domain de Brogy. <laughs> Did I do it? No, it's Broy. Go Broy. Broy. <laughs> I'm going to here, here's, here's what I'm going to do, Dave. I'm going to go in here and I'm going to fix my note and just take off that whole last bit of the the G L I E and just put Broy. There you huh? go. Domain de Broy, um, where it's it's labeled Domain de Broy as opposed to you know francis ford coppola or some of the other names that they've used traditionally that yeah. you automatically associate with it does them. say coppola on it but that's the sure. little text but the, yeah definitely the, the name of the property the name of the the brand is is domain de Broy. that comes straight from francis ford coppola himself uh he's very involved in the wine business on the particular on the creative side yeah uh he's not involved in the winemaking side although he loves to taste and check out the wines he's a big wine fan um but this is his joy, is the creation of these brands and these ideas. I mean, the Coppola um, umbrella kind of covers probably uh, 40 or 50 brands. Like, sure. I'm constantly encountering new labels that I didn't even know about. And so his daughter, Sophia, has her own line of mm-hmm. wines. Um, and so, uh, I mean, the whole family is a crazy, creative group of people that have all these ideas. Uh, Francis is just one idea after another. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. 
Did you, uh, so I would assume as you talk about the umbrella of all these different brands, you, you as a winemaker that have been doing your thing for, for some time, mm-hmm. you're now in a, in a bigger organization with other winemakers. Yep. Do you guys get together and compare notes and, yeah, we do, and talk actually. through processes? Yeah. And that's something that, you know, was of course a concern to me when, um, when Vista Hills was sold, I, I was worried about that. Like, right. Am I going to get micromanaged now? Am sure. I going to, am yeah. I going to get this cookbook? I think anybody in a creative field. Yeah. Yeah. It gets worried. I know in radio it gets that way where you have either new owners or a new manager come in and you're just like, do I get to do my thing still or is, is that going to change? Yeah, right. And so from the beginning, the attitude was very much like we love the wines. That's why we, you know, that's why we wanted to buy this property. We love the vineyard. Um, so keep doing what you're doing. And so for me, the bigger change is I now have all these resources um, right. down in California. They've got a full lab and they've got a team of winemakers and they've got a guy who's an expert, an actual French guy who's awesome. Um who's an expert in Burgundy, uh, Burgundy wines. And so I have the, those resources to lean back on now, which mm-hmm. is um, ha- has been really good for me. Uh, we're, we're making Chardonnay now, which I haven't really done since oof, the very beginning of when I was making wine. Um, so um, we grafted an acre of fruit to Chardonnay two years ago, and that produced fruit for the first time in 2018. So um, I was kind of in the dark there. So I had this great pool of wisdom to pull, pull from. So that part of it's actually been pretty good. I mean, they, they like the wines. They like, they, they get it. They understand that Oregon wine is a sort of natural product. Like the point of Oregon wine is not to engineer it to be a certain style. The point of Oregon Pinot is to kind of let it be what it, what it is. I was in Vancouver, British Columbia over the weekend mm-hmm. and my, and my mother-in-law, uh, big into wine. And she was having a conversation with the, uh, our server about Canadian wines. Mm-hmm. And he was just going off about how great Canadian wines were. And she's from Washington State. And she was just like, you know, my preference is Washington State. And he was kind of turning his nose up to it. So it is so interesting just now there are these regions Mm -hmm. uh, where you don't traditionally think, or at least you haven't. I mean, to to think that wine is is becoming a big thing in Canada. There's the the Washington, Washington wine culture, the Oregon wine culture, obviously the as you pointed out where these grapes are being grown ultimately determines that long-term taste absolutely uh what is the future though of, of oregon wine yeah it's a really good question like? i mean you know there's there's no question that climate change is real in the oregon wine industry i mean i can look at my lab notes and see it measured over the last 20 years yeah so um I have the good fortune to be working with grapes grown at a pretty high elevation, pretty much the top of the south end of the Dundee Hills at about 800 feet. It's probably four to six degrees cooler up there than it is down by the highway, down by Highway 99, the valley bottom. Um, And it's gotten a lot warmer where we are. And I'm at at the time when I first started, that was considered pretty marginal to be farming at Pinot Noir at that elevation. uh, People thought, oh boy, it's going to be rough up there. Right. Right. And I'm very happy to be up there now. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of anxiety about this, especially for uh, farms that are at lower elevation and sort of uh, deeper soils, more vigorous sites. The style of the wine has changed a lot. The wines have gotten darker. They've gotten riper. They've gotten uh, tend to be higher alcohol, which is a product of sort of sugar content. Mm. Um, The style of Oregon wines is absolutely changing. And the door is definitely open for new varietals other than Pinot to do well here. Uh, you know, I know that I'm seeing a lot more Syrah up here. I'm seeing a lot more Tempranillo up here. Sort of Southern Oregon is probably 10 years ahead of us of the, of the North Willamette Valley on this in terms of exploring sort of warmer weather of varietals because, um, you know, it's getting warm for Pinot in some places. 
Is this also where having the uh, Coppola family umbrella kind of helps in terms of resources? And because and, I'm, I'm assuming it's not just Oregon. California is probably seeing their own version of climate change. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that's yeah. So that and that's another part of the reason they're here, right? Yeah. Is that is that it's getting harder in California? Like waters become a huge issue. Fires have become a huge issue. Costs have become a huge issue. So um, absolutely, um, and uh, they get it. So this is a company that's looking to innovate and be creative and adaptive and and see what's going on. So uh, it makes sense for them to be here. How is the uh, 2019? vintage starting to look mm-hmm. what, what's what's the product it's, right now as right. We're so approaching the product those... right now is we're going through something called veraison which is a color change okay um that's already happened at lower elevation sites but at our site i was actually on vacation last week and i've come back yesterday to find that oh we've got some purple color starting to show so that will happen really throughout august it happens pretty fast actually you start to see it so sort of uh uh, first week, second week of August, and then it's you pretty much have completely purple grapes by, mm-hmm. uh, by the end of the month, by the third week or so. Um, so that's starting to happen. That means, so when you start to see color change, that means when you're really starting to load up sugar, like if you tasted the grapes right now, they're so sour that like beyond Granny Smith apple sour. Right. Just, just bitter, bitter, bitter. Uh, but we're starting to load up sugar now. So by the time we have color, it'll start to taste like something resembling a grape that you might actually want to eat. Um, and then that process just kind of continues through September. I think we're on track to be picking in October, which is again, late by modern standards, but very average by historical standards. Sure. Um, it looks a lot like last year, which turned out to be a really excellent vintage actually. 2018 wines, which I have in barrel right now are terrific, mm-hmm. are, have great balance, great color. It's really nice. Um, so we're tracking very similar to, to last year, which is weird and encouraging. I mean, it's, you know, they're comparatively cool years. We've had quite a lot of water. Uh, we really haven't had the hundred degree heat events this right. year, um, that we're, we've kind of gotten used to yeah. in the summer up here. So, um, all the indicators are good right now, but it's way too early to tell. There's plenty of time for everything to go to absolute hell in a handbasket, you know, sure. the birds can come in, the rains can come early, like any number of things can still happen. So you, you were talking about the 2018 that's currently in barrel. Mm-hmm. So when does that actually leave the barrel and get bottled? Mm-hmm. So different wineries do it on different schedules. Some do, um, you know, they do everything inside a year. So they bottle before the next vintage. Um, some go over vintage and they bottle after, after the falling vintage and I'm, and we'll, we'll be, we'll do both. So I'm doing a cuvee, a blend that will get bottled, uh, in three weeks. Actually, it's what I got to work on as soon as I leave the studio, I got to okay. work on that blend. Um, that's going to get bottled in the first week of September. And then the other half, the sort of higher end reserve wines are going to go over vintage and get bottled in probably April. Okay. So again, it goes into that. The, the science, all this stuff. I, I, yeah. It's one of the most fascinating things about, about winemaking and, you know, or a lot of, whether it's beer making or wine, winemaking, mm-hmm. it's so easy for a lay person like myself to be like, oh, you just, you know, crush the grapes, throw them in a barrel, put them in a bottle. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. But there's a lot of science that you've kind of alluded to that goes into this thing, into into a, a finished product that uh, is fascinating to me. Yeah. And, and was that, um, I'm assuming you're um, just kind of, that was probably where your fascination came as, you know, you were kind of coming up through the ranks at the, at the vineyard, seeing how this is made. It's like, oh, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. Yeah, there is. And, and definitely I'm, I'm a, I'm a sort of maker by mentality. Uh, you know, I'm a woodworker yeah. and, and, uh, and uh, 
even when I was doing the mapping and the cartography, that was a creative, that, that was the part of it I really liked. It sure. was the graphic design element to it. And so I responded to that in winemaking. There's very much a, a, a you know, a, okay, here's my process and here are my tools and here's how I do this. But then the, the kind of maddening and also fun thing about winemaking is there's this completely natural element too that you can never control. So um, it's very, very different from brewing, right? So if you're a brewer, um, you can kind of tweak your recipe. You can experiment with batches. You can throw away a bad batch if it doesn't work out and try again. You know, you can really fine tune it. And in wine, you know, a winemaker will get, I don't know, 25, 30 shots at doing their thing their whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just don't have that opportunity. You can't, you can't perfect things the way you can, I think, making other things. And so that challenge is really interesting. Certainly. Do you envision an expansion of Domaine de Broy? I honestly don't know. Um, I definitely, Coppola is a company that's always on the move yeah. and they're always doing things. So, and they're very creative. So I would not be surprised, but I don't know of any plans okay. at this point. Yeah. Um, but, but it wouldn't be out, out of the ordinary to, to see at least the Coppola family expand additionally into Oregon and even into Washington state. Are they already into Washington state doing? No, okay. no, not currently. Uh, there's just the, the, let's see, there's the two wineries in California mm-hmm. and now the winery in Oregon. Okay. Let's, let's talk about the winery. Cause I want to make sure people know that there's a tasting room yes. that people can come and check out. So yep. if they want to experience domain de Broy, um, kind of give us a, a rundown there tasting room. How do people experience? It? Yeah, it's, it's a super beautiful vineyard. Um, uh, and we're at the very top of the Dundee Hills, the South end of the Dundee Hills. We're in this, you know, we're in this ridiculously high rent Pinot Noir neighborhood. Our next door neighbor is Domaine Serene. They're next to Domaine Duran. They're next to Archery Summit. Uh, that's in the same neighborhood as Sokolblosser and Stoller and White Rose and, and, uh, Winters Hill, uh, DuPonte. So there's some, oh, DuPont, I say that wrong. Um, so it's a really great neighborhood um, with really super premium wine and, and absolutely top-notch winemaking. And so you're surrounded by all these beautiful, beautiful properties up there. Um, and the, the, the tasting room is uh, the same as it was as Vista Hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, really the only change has been the decor. Like we repainted and we have a lot of interesting uh, Coppola memorabilia. We have a bunch of De Broy family memorabilia up there now. Um, so it's got a really um, cool look about it, but it's got the stunning view. It's situated so it sort of looks towards the coast range to the west um, with big outdoor decks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we used to call that building the treehouse because it's kind of designed to look like it's up in the trees. It actually kind of feels like you're in a treehouse when you're up there. Um, and, you know, we do a tasting of uh, the regular flight of wines and some reserve wines and things like that. Um, but it's a really it's a really beautiful scene, especially this time of year. And the the tasting room itself, is it open seven days a week? Yes, or? we're open every day, uh, 11 to 5. And I think we're doing it on Fridays. We have sort of extended hours. Okay. Thing. And I'll, I'll be putting in the show notes. So if, if you're, as you're listening to this, you can go to the thing and just link right over to get all the information about Domain De Broy. And I'll spell it out properly. Very good. Um, you, you'll just have to click on it. That's all you'll have to do. <laughs> um, well, Dave, I've, I've had a fascinating uh, conversation with you. I think you should come back and we'll talk about the floods. Okay, good. That'd be great. Um, because again, I, I, you went to school for something that is completely fascinating to me, which is, which is geology and archaeology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and um, I've always just been fascinated with, you know, uh, the floods in the Willamette Valley and how they're all interconnected and, oh, it's and so good. meteorites. Yeah. The Willamette Meteor. You familiar with that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 So maybe we should have you back and we'll talk about that. Okay. All Sounds right. good. All right, Dave. Thanks for coming in. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, 
be sure to check out kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.